Our world is changing. It's time for fresh ideas and new points of view. I'm Jana Peel, Global Head of Arts and Culture at Chanel. And this is Chanel Connects, bringing together creative game changers from film, art, dance, music, and more. Can you hear me, Charles? Yeah, I can. Hi, Emerald. Hey, it's so nice to meet you. It's great to meet you, John. Great to finally meet you, Annika. Thanks for having us. Some are old friends and collaborators. Others are meeting for the first time. All are focused on what matters most and what's coming next. And now we get to listen in. In this episode, Diane Solway, Head of Arts and Culture Programs at Chanel, moderates a conversation between Emerald Fennell and Gillian Flynn. Now, you may know Emerald for her acting roles, such as in Netflix series The Crown or in motion picture The Danish Girl. And you may know her as the showrunner on season two of Killing Eve. She recently combined the two and then some directing, writing and also briefly appearing in the movie Promising Young Woman. The movie stars Carrie Mulligan as Cassie, who seeks vengeance in honor of her late best friend, with some extremely twisted methods. This devastating and darkly funny film earned Emerald an Academy Award amongst countless other accolades. Emerald connects with writer Gillian Flynn. Gillian's name is almost certainly on your bookshelf as the canny author behind Gone Girl, Sharp Objects, and Dark Places. Gone Girl in particular took the world by storm, with the book spending over 130 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. The movie adaptation of Gone Girl became a tremendous critical and commercial success, starring Rosamund Pike and Ben Affleck. Welcome, Emerald and Gillian. It's really thrilling to bring you both together. And if you could just tell us a little bit about where you are and set the scene for us a bit. I'm in Chicago, where is now my my home base on a snowy day. Um, and just uh, was writing this morning. I write, I write from my house and was down in my very weird, delightful office that includes, you know, a John Dillinger death mask that my husband gave me when he was courting me. So I knew, that's when I knew he was the one. <laughs> and other strange little knickknacks. We were talking before about Zoom backgrounds and how people choose them. Mine is always needs to be deconstructed a little bit so it doesn't frighten uh, normal humans. <laughs> and Emerald, what about you? Set the scene for us a bit um, about where you are today. Well, I'm in Los Angeles for work at the moment, so I am currently in a podcast studio in Hollywood, which feels very glamorous. And um, I'm staying in an Airbnb where the Zoom backdrop is a wallpaper which has lots of nude women. Uh, and my, which is which is great, considering the kind of work I do, uh, and which my two-and-a-half-year-old son calls the bum room. So, uh, yeah, sadly we're not there. Right well, now. a very warm welcome to you both. Thank you. There's so much to discuss here, and I'd like to start by discussing how you both write these characters that operate in these moral gray zones in a way that we don't often see on screen or in literature. What do you think the world gets wrong about women and their dark thoughts? I mean, I I can say I feel like I've been fighting that fight my entire writing career. You know, I wrote 
sharp objects often in response to the fact that I had read a zillion books by men and about men who dealt with violence and generational violence and how that looks like over a decade and and how different generations feel it. And I thought, where are the women's stories about this? And, you know, a lot of stories about women being abused, but not stories about women who are inherently violent. And I thought, we're missing a big segment of what women are, which is human, basically. I'll pass it off to Emerald. I'm very interested, you know, kind of what sparked you, because it sounds like we're interested in a lot of the same topics. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <gasps> I think so. I mean, yeah, and I think I, I completely agree with everything you're saying. And also the way that women are violent is very specific and different. So you often get, you know, violent female characters written by men, but they're men, you know, usually, right. but they've just got boobs enormous ones they're sexy hopefully yeah there's the other option right yeah and you know and they're wearing tight black leather pants and they are not violent in in any way that I recognize but female violence you know as Gillian says is like much more complicated much more chilling much longer we have a vast appetite for cruelty but it's very different I would say and people don't like to talk about it because it's troubling because we have to be good. Because for, for society to work, we all have to be good, mothers, wives. But, you know, the truth of it is, is we're not nice. We might be worse. <laughs> so, like, what do we do with that? What does society do with that information? I mean, that's I've had conversations with my friends about this a lot, of, of that idea that why is it women that bear the burden of being good and what would – this is sort of – I'm working on my next novel right now and smack in the middle of it. And it has, definitely has to do with themes of what happens if a, uh, women decide to drop that mantle and behave in the, quote, stereotypical, quote, typical male fashion of, you know, you must win, don't apologize, don't explain, do what you need to do, it's all okay, um, abandon what you feel like. You know, what would happen if women just chose – to not be the nurturing, forgiving, caring, bearing all that burden. Because it is a burden and it's ridiculous. It's a burden. <laughs> I agree with you. Like we're not nice. Yeah. It's a burden and it's boring. <laughs> a lot of us aren't nice. I think It's exhausting yeah, too. It's exhausting. Boring and exhausting. And it's boring. And I think, you know, you as a woman are kind of responsible for being the spokesperson for every other woman as well in a way that just, (laughs) you know, it was really interesting when I was talking about the film a lot. I'd get a lot of very personal questions, you know, like even as boldly as, you know, men usually, but sometimes women would ask if I, you know, had I been sexually assaulted, would I like to talk about it? Yes. And really, is this your story? Exactly. But I think aside from whether it may or may not be the case, it's more like I just do not see people asking male writers or directors if they've murdered a ton of people to write their movie (laughs) or if they have, you know, ever flown in the air wearing a cape. You've both written these very complicated female characters where you don't really know if you're supposed to love or hate them. In Promising Young Woman, and here's a small spoiler, Cassie's best friend commits suicide after being sexually assaulted, so Cassie takes revenge on anyone and everyone involved in that tragic event. Yes. Then we have Gone Girl, where Amy is a lying murderer plotting against her husband. Both Cassie and Amy have been described as total (gasps) sociopaths. 
Do you feel like audiences are less forgiving of flawed female leads? As long as we can just write characters where women are kind of dicks, they don't even have to be sort of fascinating. They could just be losers, boring losers, voyeurs, kind of pervs, not fun, not sexy, not chilling or frightening. Just as long as we can start writing about proper losers, then we'll be fine. But I don't even think we're there yet. You still have to be sexy. And I think that what the next stage will be or what it feels like for me is the kind of deprettification of the whole thing. Because when we talk about ugliness, it still has to be inside someone beautiful. I don't mean that that Hollywood consumable face. No. You know, where's the female character actor? Oh, yeah. You can name maybe three and think, you know, good on them. Yeah. But uh, where is that as a as a thing, you know? Absolutely. Or you can be John C. Riley and do a zillion movies with your wonderful face. But it's that thing of like the people we're really scared of. You know, yes, I was scared of the Queen Bee at school who was kind of like the hottest potato in town. But the women that I'm really frightened of, you don't notice. Yes. That's part of their genius is they're part of the furniture and that's how they get you. Yes. And we just still don't see that. We haven't seen that yet. And that's kind of the thing that I'm doing next and I'm most interested in doing the kind of the furniture women yeah you you both write sort of dark stories but that very much are laced with these comedic moments and these sort of sharp satirical moments do you find uh dark moments funny and and what do you think humor adds to the darkness of the story you go first emerald yours is i mean (laughs) I was crying at some points because it felt way too close to home, like way too close to home. But I was laughing throughout, which is, I think it's a sensation that's not very common. So I'd love, I'd love to hear how you balance that and figure that out, both writing and directing it. Well, thank you. I think, I mean, it's this funny one, isn't it? Because so much of it is like, it's not thought, it's not planned in a funny way. The way that you are and the way that you write are, are kind of part of who you are and I think certainly in my family and with my life our sense of humor is incredibly macabre and there's nothing that's off limit in fact humor is the kind of release valve that makes life bearable and the most broadly comic scene in the movie spoiler alert is after Cassie's murdered and the best man comes in the following morning and he's like you killed the fucking stripper you know what is this the 90s And we've seen this movie. We've seen that movie so many times. We've seen conversations all similar so many times. And, you know, and if the audience laughed, we only, I only got to see it in a movie theater twice because of COVID, but the first person who kind of dared to laugh there and then the sort of floodgates of laughter, it was such a important moment because it's kind of like, yes, you're laughing and you have laughed and like who's laughing now because I'm you know we're we were watching this whole time the the problem is about every woman you will ever meet has a story uh, you know at some level of assault I mean absolutely I just don't doubt that and it's so many that it almost to some people feels cliche what what do you both feel that humor brings to the story and characters because humor is so much you know, as we've been discussing so much at the heart 
of the stories that you yeah. tell, and particularly the characters are are funny. They're they're inc- funny as hell and twisted and dark all in the same time. What do you think humor does in terms of either how that moves the story along, how that makes this, the character much more complex? Well, I'm I'm at the Emerald. I think to me, my reaction is always to try to find the absurdity in almost any situation. And, you know, my favorite quote is by Mark Twain, humor is the great thing, the saving thing after all. I think, to me, humor does a lot of things. Number one, it makes the character who's doing nasty things more accessible. It tells the reader or the viewer that they are self-aware, which is, I think is really important for me, my characters at least, that they can comment on what they're doing. And to me, that shows another thing, which is that they are not, quote, the psycho bitch, unquote, which is uh, what I got asked a lot when Gone Girl came out. Why do you always write psycho bitches? (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) It's like, that's one way to look at it, I guess. But, you know, to me, it's very important that, you know, they they have that humor. And also, I love characters with humor, and I like the mystery genre, mystery thriller for for the very reason that when you deploy it that way, you're keeping the audience entertained. It doesn't feel like I'm presenting the deepest, darkest movie where we're all going to you know, get into what's wrong with society. But the same way, I, I have trouble not doing it for the same reason Emerald said. Like I just – if when you're, when you're writing that really dark stuff, you kind of need to entertain yourself along the way. Yeah. And it is funny. I mean somebody I know tangentially fell into – in the torrential rain, fell into their father's grave as he was being buried. And I'm, I'm sorry, but it's the funniest thing I've ever heard in my life. You know, and that's the trouble. It's like – what do you do when the world that we live in is so absurd, when everything is so kind of tenuous and fragile and, you know, terrifying? You, you've you got to laugh about it. I think there's no – and especially if you're a woman. I told my husband my dream death is to be attacked and killed by an ostrich. So that way <laughs> – so that way – Anytime anyone talked about, you know, Gillian's dead, it'd be like, how did she die? Well, funny story. <laughs> well, also because w- what would be really great is if you're, if you're killed by ostriches, but nobody's ever allowed to say exactly how. So people have to then be like, oh, she pecked. Would, was it ha- like was she, what? Like, ha- but how would sex? you? How could you be? Was it ostrich? sex? <laughs> oh, it was sex. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you guys, how much control do each of you get on casting? Emerald, you had a really specific way of casting Promising Young Woman, yeah, which stars Carrie Mulligan as Cassie, and Ryan is played by Bo Burnham, who is such a beloved actor and comedian and portrays one of the good guys, someone many men can relate to. Can you talk to us about your approach to casting? Yeah, totally. I mean, I was very lucky with Promising Young Woman because it was a low-budget independent movie, so... I I was given a lot of freedom. That's the thing that you do get. And if you don't have money or time, you've got homework. So you can just every single item on that screen, every single T-shirt, every single nail color, every single casting choice has to deliver a kind of 
you know, a value of some kind, because that's all you've got. And so, you know, obviously, when it came to the men, they had to be the kind of men that you would want to go home with, conceivably, that that, that you are yeah. friends with, that are nice, the, the kind of guys that would say, really? Because like, I've worked with him for years and he's never been weird with me. You know, or he's such a good friend of mine. Are you sure it wasn't? You know, it's those guys. Yeah. And, you know, with Bo, casting Ryan was really hard. A, because Carrie's just so fucking good. <laughs> <laughs> and she, a bit like Cassie, is kind of intimidating. Not, she's not, she's wonderful, but she's just like, you know, come and she's get She's so good. She's, she's like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so, and, but we were really lucky. We got, we did some chemistry tests with lots of really amazing people. But when Bo came in, you know, he's so smart and he's a genius and in a very different way to her. And they just sparked so well and it was brilliant. And, you know, I think the thing about casting that is you had to cast someone that felt like we as an audience would be heartbroken when we found out too, because the stakes of this movie, it's not just the Nina story, it's a love story. So we really needed to believe it, to care because that's what it does feel like. It does feel like, oh, fuck you too. You know, it's it's right. the kind of inverse of me too. It's, oh, you as well. Of course you did it. Of course you were there. Of course you were oh laughing. Oh my gosh, I just have to jump in. I remember when, uh, you know, all during the height of me too, and I was with my husband. We were on our 10-year anniversary. And we were... We were way down in Belize, and the Louis C.K. Me Too moment came out. And I remember I was literally crying to my husband, and I was like, I can't take this anymore. Like, who else is it going to be? If it... And I remember talking about that moment, and it was this moment of all the revelations during that time period and still going on now. Again, you, you're like, that's the good guy. Like, I can— that guy's on our side. You know, that guy's with us. It doesn't think of us as the other. And, you know, it just felt like this, you know, rug being pulled out of like, you know, well, maybe no one does take us seriously and no one <laughs> no one really respects us still. Still, yeah. you know. And and but I think I think yeah, the one of the conversations I I had a lot I think with men during the making of the movie and afterwards was like Part of it was, but this doesn't happen that much. And, blah, 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 you know, all those sort of conversations. And I was like, look, the thing is, is every, it's kind of what you were saying, Gillian. Every woman I know has been sexually assaulted to some degree. Yes. It, you know, usually multiple times. I'm sorry to say it so boldly, but it's true. Yet no, none of the boys or men we know are sexual assaulters. So how does that maths work? <laughs> and that's the chilling thing. Of course it's chilling. But so much about this stuff as a kind of wider conversation is then where are we? When, uh, how do we move on as a society? How do we move on with our relationships with each other? And I think the answer is, and what I'm kind of wanting to sort of at least explore in the movie is like, is forgiveness. But you only get forgiveness if you acknowledge and you apologize. And the thing that all these men have in common, it's like, acknowledge it, really acknowledge it. You got to confess if you want forgiveness. Yeah. And, it, and the saying it was the time period. Yeah. That is not an apology, no. saying, well, I grew up in a different time mm -hmm. or at that time, because apparently it's all time. Oh, yeah, it's all time. <laughs> I, you know, and you know, it doesn't matter the time period, you know, you know what is right and what is wrong. Yeah, and just... It doesn't matter, you know, the whole, like, well, everyone else was doing it is, as we know, from about age five is not 
a proper excuse. No. No. Let's talk a little bit about endings. Yeah. Gillian, the ending of Gone Girl was quite polarizing to some. (laughs) How did you come to the decision to end the story the way you did? Well, I will say it was the only way. I mean, I, I, I tried a couple different endings to see how I was feeling about it. And that ultimately was the only correct one. And I feel very strongly that it was the only correct one. But I have definitely had people who wait in line for <laughs> at a book signing and, you know, get to the front and slam the book down. I hated this book. I hated, you know, I hated the ending. I only came here because my book club made me, and <laughs> I wanted to tell you how bad the ending was. I mean, this was not what? an unusual thing. Oh, yeah, not an unusual thing during the height of God Girl. <laughs> and I always, I mean, I I don't take that personally because I always, I would rather people feel strongly about my stuff than go, like, you know, watch it and go, eh, yeah, yeah, or read it and go, like, yeah, I liked it. And, you know, I want a response, and, you know, so I always engage. And, you know, well, so, okay, so why did you hate it so much? And every single time I got some version of there wasn't justice. Yeah. She wasn't punished. <laughs> she got away with it. And what the hell, how could you possibly give that ending? And I always <laughs> just say back, what about this book possibly Made you think there was going to be justice at the end. <laughs> it's and also, not that book. What about this book makes you think that we're on his side? You know, that's right. an interesting. Right. That, don't we kind right. of na- we naturally do that? That's fast. I can't believe someone would wait in line, go to a bookstore to wait in wait. line. To tell you they this was book. a regular, regular <laughs> thing. And when we were making the movie, you know, I would if people didn't know I was actually writing it. I had to constantly had people like, well, I hope they change the ending because that <laughs> ending in the, you know, that, I hope no one's going to watch that. If you, ha. Gillian, I, you co-wrote Widows with Steve McQueen. And, you know, it's interesting in talking about genres. I mean, the film really reimagines the classic heist movie, um, this time with a female-led cast and also a storyline that focuses on societal inequity and the women's lives Directly. I mean, I, I loved just the idea of having to get childcare for the night of a heist. Um, <laughs> how did you and Steve McQueen collaborate as writers? We, I would throw out certain things. And, and again, I mean, the childcare was definitely one of them. <laughs> uh, being a, a mom of two, it was like, how would I do this? Like, literally, how, you know, you do have to think about that kind of thing. And, I mean, and, and, and Gone Girl, at the end with Amy, she certainly plays with this, too. How do you use the stereotypes that exist about women as weapons? Because you might as well. You're going to have to deal with it. You might as well sharpen it up and stab someone with it. So it was very much discussions about that. We both were fans. You know, we went in from the very beginning. I'm, I'm no interest in a hacker film. Like, if, you're, if you want a lot of high-tech heists, I am not the person for you. But... We neither of us did. We wanted, you know, Steve very much wanted to feel like the 70s heist movies where you really literally feel things. You know, you hear the door slam and you hear the car crash isn't this overly sleek production. And my my favorite part of heist movies is the getting the gang together. Like, <laughs> that's actually a very, you know, female skill. What do I need Delegation. in order to put this together? And so that piece I, I really loved and— you know, uh, Steve was. You talked about casting, and we were still writing. We knew Viola was going to be the lead, national treasure, and <laughs> so I was able to start writing toward her. 
mm-hmm. which was really cool. Did you have a big say in casting, too, for Gone Girl? You know, Fincher and I just worked incredibly well together. And we so we were of very similar minds. I mean, it was a David Fincher movie all the way. So it wasn't like I was making the casting calls, but he was incredibly inclusive and collaborative. And we knew Ben from the start, obviously. It was just the the way he had, he deals with media, the way, you know, there's entire Twitter links dedicated to, you know, sad Ben. <laughs> Right. And, you know, what you have to do with that when the media is packaging you in a way that is not you, that, you know, and uh, because they're capturing certain moments and, you know, playing into that moment where he, the they smile. tell him to smile. The smile. You know, and of course, uh, yeah. And of course, being a nice Midwestern boy, he smiles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that just felt, um, I mean, bit, not Ben, but the character, mm-hmm. but I felt like he was in often that same position where it was just, the, you know, photography molding uh, our understanding of him. So it, that just felt like the obvious choice. Um, how do you both leave darkness at work or because you both have kids, perhaps darkness <laughs> at home and writing is the escape? I know that Emerald, you were keen to ask Gillian about sort of what's it like to to really separate the two. So maybe Gillian, you can tackle that one first. It's tricky. For me, it's tricky. I I always know that what I'm writing is good stuff because I literally sweat through my clothes. I'm literally hunched and just typing as fast as I can in this, very much in this world. I'm, you know, they're method actors. I guess I'm a method writer. I sort of just, I I really dissolve into what I'm writing. So I had a baby in the middle of writing, writing Gone Girl, the novel, and then I had a baby right before the movie came out, my second child, and... I was doing – the timing was I was doing interviews three days after I gave birth because oh, the wow. movie was so close to coming out. You know, we were doing, you know, the premiering it in New York at the New York Film Festival, and I was literally pumping all over at in every closet that might be <laughs> in New York City, just, just fully consumed, but at the same time doing and talking about incredibly dark stuff. And I have a friend who gave me a little um, sort of little marble plaque that sits on my desk that says, leave the crazy downstairs, <laughs> which is, <laughs> it's, I, I always keep in mind because I've, what I've learned is I will carry that up with me, you know, and it will infect the mood of the family. So I've learned to take about 15 minutes when I'm done writing and I'll just do something to help sort of changed my palate. I'll, you know, I'll watch Donald O'Connor do Make Him Laugh and Sing It in the Rain, um, which I, I dare you to not be cheerful after. I'll, you know, listen to a great song, The Simbarists, you know, Don't Carry It All or something like that. And and just kind of let myself decompress and turn back into a, a human again and not the character that I'm writing because that's pretty much what I tend to do. Emerald, what about you? It's very similar. I was kind of similar to you in, in that I was pregnant with uh, my son during, you know, I I gave birth three weeks after we finished shooting, promising, and then oh <laughs> and then and then went straight back into the edit and then I just had my, <laughs> my most recent child six months ago in the middle of making this West End show, Cinderella. And so it's so grueling physically. 
and, and it's kind of a, yes. a weird position to be in because they're well it's not weird lots of women do it but but I was wondering particularly when your children were younger how did you do that how were you able to do that not well I guess is the first the most complete answer I, I really struggled to figure out you know what that balance is and I you know I would certainly say the tricky part I think for me is I because I, I write about women who have murky morality and in relationship with violence and and they're not that far off from a certain part of me you know I was kind of this wild wolf that I try to keep caged somewhere but I'm always feeling like <laughs> like had slightly different circumstances I would have been a much different and more dangerous human but I'm leading to that because I I wouldn't call myself a natural born mother I guess if we're like I'm not I'm not a knee jerk nurturer when I was first having kids you know I remember like we were walking and we were oh, on getting near the really noisy L tracks, and my mom reached over and automatically covered my son's ears. He was, you know, about age one, and I thought, "Oh, right! <laughs> like I have this. I I should be doing more of this." You know, she had the Kleenex ready. You know, with first naughty noses, little snacks. You know, all this. I felt like I really had to learn and study how to do that, and I would say that I'm still trying to figure out that balance for sure. I'm still trying to figure out who I am as a mom and sort of accepting that I'm, you know, my, it turns out actually my husband is the natural, <laughs> the natural, and I'm the one who's still learning, which is, you know, usually considered the opposite, gender opposite. But it is an ongoing and tricky balance for me. But, you know, it's interesting you use the word balance. I mean, I think when we're talking about all these stories of the way women are, are supposed to talk about these subjects, even with children, I think the idea that there is a balance, I mean, I think sometimes there there isn't a balance between different parts of your life. That's just normal, I think. But I think also mm -hmm. women also are so quick to judge themselves harshly about whatever they think their idea is of what a good mother is. I mean, I've never heard a man say, oh, I'm such a bad dad. I, you know, just I showed up and everyone applauds, you know, but I think it's just yes. you've, you've never heard a man say, have you been in a group of men where they're all sharing stories about what bad dads they are? <laughs> oh, my God. There's a there's a movie for you, Emerald. <laughs> the Bad Dads Club. <laughs> the Bad Dads Club. Woe is me. Oh, I've got to really work on this. I'm reading eight different books right now and I'm in support groups. That would be amazing <laughs> if you heard that. My husband always talks about like, you know, I'm at the with the kids at the park and I like I get so many like great, good on you <laughs> sort of moments. Yeah. Oh, totally. It's like a different experience when my husband like goes out with our children. <laughs> and everyone's like, Oh my god. Yes. <laughs> it's called And then uh, you go out uh, and they're like, Oh, you you might as well be dead. You've served your purpose in this yeah. lovely world and now you lie down and you die. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Although we may need you back to wipe some noses and remember the Cheerios in the, in the packet. If you can remember lose, the Cheerios, yeah. remember the Cheerios. Lose some weight. Put on a mini skirt. Definitely. Pretend you don't have kids, and we may let you back in. <laughs> <gasps> 
we're obviously discussing in this conversation the comedy and tragedy and mostly in fiction. But Gillian, I know you've been doing this in real life. Is it right that during to help you with the pandemic stress, you've been writing a comedy? Yes. We went back to Kansas City and rented a house to be near my folks for, you know, a couple months during the pandemic. And it's sort of a comedic Gen X story of just a group of friends kind of together. And I couldn't I couldn't decide if I wanted to address the pandemic, but I like the idea of a bunch of people being crowded together and how they interact and how that idea – I mean, in Kansas City, most people – are happy and stay in Kansas City. And so most of my friends from high school and college are are still in Kansas City. I'm kind of fascinated with that idea of what happens when you've known people since high school and you're sort of trapped in this particular bubble of a personality that you're almost not allowed to break out of. And I think that's so interesting. I, I couldn't personally do it. I just had to move around so I could grow up and feel sort of like a different person. But when I go back home, I still totally regress and I'm back to, I want to drink Seagram's golden wine coolers till I've (laughs) put the fruit at the bottom like and and smoke little skinny Capri cigarettes and drive around in a cabriolet. Like, that's what I want to do. What was your like Kansas (laughs) personality? Like, who were you in the group? I was... Definitely a watcher. I was a very shy human. I've really struggled with that my whole life. And I hate it when people who are not shy go like, oh, I'm really shy. Because it really, if you're actually a shy person, it really does feel like a disease almost. You know, you want to say something, you can't. So I was I was pretty quiet. And so I was very much watching and trying to figure out what clothing items I might need, what I should do. And I'd like to add that I did end up being first runner-up prom queen. Whoa! That's a twist. (laughs) Emerald, have you had any secret passion projects during the pandemic? Um, Secret? Well, I I took up beading for a while. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting. I making little bracelets. And my husband came home one day and he was like, no, no, not for you. Not for you. And I was like, you're right. I don't know what I'm doing. Save me from myself. (laughs) You didn't bake sourdough bread. I did not. Every, I did not either. I did not either. <laughs> I opted out. So me and my husband we were living in LA, but we were in London during lockdown. And so we, we moved in, me, my sister, my husband, our six-month-old baby, moved in with my parents and me and my husband and baby <laughs> lived in my teenage bedroom for four months no, of the no. pandemic. And I was doing no. Zooms for um, Promising a Woman with a kind of like tawdry t- teenage bedroom in the back, like a sort of cam girl. <laughs> And I just, there was so much of me that just thought, maybe I just lean into this, like make some extra cash on it for OnlyFans. Yeah, my, my folks still live in the same house I grew up in too. So I, you know, we go back, same thing. Is your bedroom still the same? Most of it is, yeah. I mean, it, it definitely, the furniture has been rearranged, but I know where I used to hide my beer. <gasps> I know the crevice where I used to, <laughs> to you know, that's still there and functional should I need it. Emerald, we haven't got much time left, but I'd love to ask you more about the play Cinderella. Cinderella came back because, well, because Andrew Lloyd Webber had been wanting to write Cinderella forever. 
and I was sitting next to him at a dinner and he he kind of mentioned it. You know, he said he'd had lots of kind of um, people made suggestions for Cinderella and he'd never found anything that he liked. And then, as usually happens with these things, and because I'm such a kind of natural sort of homework person, I went to him and I thought, well, actually, I wonder if there is a way of making Cinderella feel interesting. Uh, for me, the main thing was like, why why do I care about somebody wh- whose only characteristic is that they look sexy while they're sweeping like I need I'm gonna need more than that and so in this Cinderella she's the prick she's the person who pushes everyone away and it's about her kind of you know she lives in this town where everyone is gorgeous and she's like fuck this and then uh she sort of realizes that she needs to participate uh grow to love herself and everyone else yeah and Gillian the comedy you described about your hometown is that a novel or a screenplay the comedy, I, I just have to say, is purely for me and not okay. um, on a any studio deadline. I'm also writing, adapting my uh, novella, which is called The Grown Up. That's a a fun, sleek, grifter sort of film. Like I want it to be, you know, sort of Point Blake, the Lee Marvin version. Is that the um, one with the like? I'm so sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Is that the one with the the girl who goes to be a babysitter, to be a nanny? This is one about a woman who <laughs> works at a massage parlor and she's a grew up with a grifter mom and was used as a tool for her so knows has learned everything from the beginning and she has decided that she's going to go into sort of spiritual house cleansings you know those people who go in and change the aura um that that will be part of it that she need, just needs to find the first victim so she has access to rich nervous humans and <laughs> it's kind of about this power play between the two women because the person who's supposed to be preyed upon is has her own mission <laughs> so, <laughs> it's like war of the roses meets matchstick men <laughs> oh my god it sounds so good um emerald is there a film that you're shooting this summer yes can you tell us anything about it i actually can't <laughs> I think partly just for self-preservation, you know, and for my insanity. But I, uh, yeah, I'm very excited about it. Did you write it in, and you're directing it as well? Yeah. Fantastic. Oh, right I can't wait. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real treat to talk to both of you, Emerald Fennell and Gillian Flynn. And um, maybe you'll even work together at some point down the road. Can you imagine? I would be the best thing in the world. I bet I might die in excitement. The most (laughs) delightful, dark, weird, hilarious experience. And I would do that in a second. It might be too much. We might both go mad. (laughs) We might commit an atrocity. (laughs) (laughs) I should give it a test drive though (laughs) (laughs) thank you guys so much thank you for listening to Chanel Connects don't forget you can follow the show on Apple Podcasts Spotify Stitcher Amazon Music or your favorite podcast app you can also listen back to season one, featuring conversations between Pharrell Williams and Ez Devlin, Kira Knightley and Lulu Wang, and many more. <laughs>